Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. Looking at the final message, we want to examine exactly what it is that God has on his mind as the message that is to wake up the inhabitants of planet Earth just before the second coming of Christ. And of course, from the picture there, I think we all know what message that would be. It's a message that uh, we're all familiar with. It's the message of the three angels. We know that as the last message of mercy to the world. And uh, it's of course recorded in Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse six, it says, and I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. This is a prophecy. The everlasting gospel will be preached in all the world. And as a matter of fact, if we compare what Jesus said in Matthew 24, we find that when this gospel is preached for witness unto all nations, then what happens? The end comes. So this is the very final message, this everlasting gospel. What is this everlasting gospel all about? It's what's portrayed there in the beloved uh, three angels messages, right? That's uh, our marching orders. If we were to summarize our message to the world in one place, we'll find it right there in Revelation 14, verses 6 down to 12. What is this everlasting gospel? I want to focus a little bit on particularly the first angel's message tonight because it contains elements that we actually rarely explore. The way things are, when something becomes so familiar to us, we find that many times we take things about it for granted, that we neglect certain details in it. And this is... Uh, what we actually want to find about, uh, out about in this uh, message tonight, particularly the first angel's message. And this is what it says in verse 7. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. This is what we know as the first angel's message, correct? Very simple, very straightforward, and very profound. And this message has in its core one particular issue. If we were to summarize it in one word, it is the issue of worship. Isn't that right? Actually, the whole three angels messages is an issue of worship because that's the theme that runs throughout the three angels messages. And this central issue of worship is the final conflict in the last days. From this message, we know there's going to be confusion over worship in the last days. That's why God sends this message called the everlasting gospel to call people's attention to worship who? God who made heaven and earth. There are three very distinct elements to this message. The first one or, or three things that we are called to do in this message. What's the first thing we're called to do? It is to fear God. And the next thing is? To give glory to Him and finally to worship Him. And if you examine the entire three angels' messages, you will find that there is nothing else that we are called to do. The second and third angels' messages are warnings as to what will happen to those who neglect to heed this injunction of the first angel. Isn't that right? The second angel warns that Babylon is what? Fallen. And the third angel warns that those who receive the mark will be? Tormented, correct? Or they will perish. There is nothing else that we are called to do besides fearing God, giving glory to Him, and worshiping Him. This is the central issue in the three angels' messages. And so it becomes very significant and very important for us 
to understand who is this God that we are called to worship? Who is this angel speaking about, in other words? Who is being referred to in this message? Because failure to understand this part of the message will determine that we receive the warnings given in the second and third angel's message. You're with me? Because they're consecutive. And the problem exists today, brothers and sisters, in that there is much confusion about God and worship that belongs to God. That's what I want to uncover together this evening as we travel through the scriptures. But this is really the groundwork of what we're talking about. We're talking about a current event issue in the spiritual realm and an issue that concerns God so much that he sent these angels with this everlasting gospel to restore this true worship and this knowledge of who he is to his people. So if we were to ask this question, this identity that is given of God, he's not identified by name here, is he? He's, he's identified by a description of what he has done. He is described as him that made heaven and, and earth. So if we were to ask this question, who is this God that this angel is referring to? How would we answer? I find this a very interesting exercise, especially when uh, we're among uh, brothers and sisters, Seventh-day Adventists, and we, we, we talk about the three angels' messages all the time. and say, okay, fear God, give glory to him and worship him. Who is the angel talking about? How would we answer? And you know what the amazing thing is? I'm not going <laughs> to get you to try and answer me tonight. But the amazing thing is when, when we find answers, we find that there are different answers that are given. Now that tells us there is a little bit of a, of a problem, right? Everybody should have one correct answer to this question. Who is the angel talking about? Because if we are called, we know the angels, there's not going to be a literal angel coming from heaven. This angel represents a movement, a group of people who share a message. Those who share the message need to know and understand who is this God that they're calling people's attention to worship. And so this is the answer we want to find in the scriptures. And I'm not going to tell you, I think it's this or I think it's that. We want to find the Bible answer clearly. Who is this maker of heaven and earth? Acts 17, 24, we find another description. It says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Here's another description. The God who made all things, he's also referred to as what? The Lord of heaven and earth. What we're doing tonight, brothers and sisters, we're going to do a Bible study and just allow the Bible to answer our questions because we cannot afford to be confused over the identity of who we worship in the last days. This is a question of vital importance. And so we want to be certain as to what the answer is. So according to Jesus, we'll get the highest authority on the question. That's usually a good, uh, a good place to inquire. According to Jesus, who is the Lord of heaven and earth, who is also the maker of all things? And the answer is in Matthew eleven twenty-five. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes. So the answer to the question, according to Jesus, is? It is God the Father. And so the first angel's message that says, Fear God, give glory to him, and worship him, is really talking about the Father, correct? 
And how many besides the father? Only that says, fear him or them. Him, meaning one. And so the true God, the Father, is the living God. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the creator. He is the maker of all things. And something has happened among the inhabitants of the world that has caused confusion as to the identity and authority and place of God the Father when it comes to worship. Hence, there is this message. Now, brothers and sisters, this confusion has been so prevalent and so predominant that it's actually happened among people who claim to be Christians, people who go to church, even people who profess and claim to be the remnant. And that's why I said sometimes it's an interesting exercise to ask people who, you know, take the three angels' messages as their marching orders to ask them, who is the first angel speaking about? I found that receiving a variety of answers is a tragic situation that exists. The Father is the one who is referred to here. And this truth that has been forgotten and trampled, God is planning for it to be restored as part of the everlasting gospel before the end comes. And so when you see a restoration of the truth of who God is and to truly worship Him, then you know that the end is very near. That's part of this everlasting gospel. When we talk about God is one, this is a... a, a a truth that is revealed abundantly in the scriptures in a number of places. Deuteronomy 6.4 is one of them. And it tells us, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And when it says one Lord here, the word Lord in, in capital letters in, uh, in the Old Testament, in the original Hebrew, it's actually Yahweh. Or what we would know in English as Jehovah. In other words, it says, Hear, O Israel, or Israel uh, Jehovah our God, Jehovah is one. This is one of the cardinal pillars of the faith. It is not referring to a group or to a unit or to a compound or to a committee. It is referring to one individual person. The Lord our God is one Lord. And this one individual person is the one referred to in the, third, in the first angel's message as we saw. But I want to just confirm that fact by a number of verses before we go on. In uh, Mark chapter 12, we have a story of... Christ and the scribe having this interesting conversation about the first commandment of all. And this is what is recorded, verse 28. And one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? That's a good question to ask Christ because you're going to get a really good answer. You're going to get the right answer. And uh, this question was designed to actually test Christ. But if I were to ask you this question, how would you answer? And you can answer if you, if, if you know the answer. If you don't know the answer, it's okay. Most commonly, the answer that is given is, first commandment is to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is really the summary of the whole gospel. And that's a very good and correct answer, but it is incomplete. Because Jesus did not answer that at first. He said something before he said that. We read it in the next verse. And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He quoted Deuteronomy 6.4. And then he says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is no other commandment greater than these. 
You see, brothers and sisters, before we can love God with all our hearts, we need to know who He is. There is no point in saying to love God with all your heart when you don't know or understand who you're supposed to love. And so before Jesus said that, He says, listen, you need, first thing you need to understand something, that the Lord our God is one, the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth, the Lord of heaven and earth. When you know that, then the next step is to love him with all the heart and the neighbor as yourself. And, uh, and then the, the account continues. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he. And then he also says that to love him with all the heart is more than burnt offerings and sacrifices. And so the scribe actually heard from Jesus the answer that he had in his own mind that he wanted to test Jesus with. And he agreed with him. And then the answer of Christ is also very interesting because in verse 34, Jesus, it says, when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, thou art not far from the kingdom of God. So the discussion that they were having, Christ and this scribe, was about God and having a relationship with Him, correct? And in both their understanding, they agreed on the fact that God is only one, that there is one God, and as the scribe put it really well, and there is none other but, but He. And when Jesus heard that, He says, you know what, you're not far from the kingdom. Now here's the question, who were they talking about? Who is this one God that they were having this discussion and conversation about? It is none other than the Father, the creator of all things, the Lord of heaven and earth. This is the God of the Jews. And Christ made that very, very plain in John 8, 54. Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. And so when the scribe said, there is one God and none other but he, he was referring to God the Father. In other words, God the Father is the God of the Bible, correct? And there is none other but He. And loving Him with all the heart puts you not far from the kingdom, according to, to Christ, right? Now, I'm sure your minds will be thinking right now, say, yeah, hold on, that sounds good, but hold on a minute. What about, you know, Christ and, and the Holy Spirit? This, this, this brother has just left out all these things and just told us this. Radical sounding statements. So we want to explore that a little bit, brothers and sisters, because we cannot afford to be confused as to the identity of God when it comes to the last days, because it affects our worship. Confused ideas about God equals confused ideas about worship. And confused ideas about worship means you are in danger of receiving what? The mark? of the beast, because that's what it says in the, in the three angels' messages. That's why the first angel actually tells people, listen, fear God, give glory to Him, and worship Him, the one who created all things, God the Father. When we talk about one God and uh, that God is one, sometimes people say, well, hold on a minute, you know, in the Bible, uh, God is one, but God is also more than just one. I'm not sure if you heard that idea or not, but that's a very common idea. Say, well, God is, is more than one, because actually in the Hebrew, there is this Hebrew word called Elohim, uh, which refers to God. And this word is, is a plural word, which gives us the idea that God is, is 
more than just one. It's actually three. That's the common belief understanding. But the Hebrew word Elohim actually is a plural word. But it doesn't mean what a lot of people think it means. And all we have to do, all we have to do is look in the scriptures to find an answer and a definition for what that actually means. A good example of that is Exodus 7 and verse 1. It says here, And the Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a God, which is the Hebrew word Elohim, to Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. If you look up at the concordance or the, in the dictionary, you find that the word Elohim actually tells us that it denotes greatness. It's called the plural of majesty. The dictionary actually says it's plural intensive with singular meaning. If you really want to be specific. What that means basically is it denotes, it's God using a plural word to denote greatness and majesty. And this is what he had meant when he said to Moses, I have made you Elohim. It doesn't mean I have made you more than one person or I've made you a few individuals into one. Moses was still one person. But God had elevated his status like himself in the eyes of Pharaoh. He says, I made you God to Pharaoh. I've made you like me. Not that Moses was God, but in a position of high authority and status. And the next chapter, a uh, couple of chapters later, Exodus 11.3 gives us clearly the answer that we're wondering about. It says, moreover, the man Moses was what? Very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Why was he very great? Because God had said, I have made you Elohim to Pharaoh. I have made you very great. And so when the word Elohim is used to refer to the true God of the Bible, it indicates that he is also very great. It doesn't mean that he is more than one person. Not according to the way the Bible uses that term when it comes to God. And so God is one, and this one God, of course, is the Father. He is the only true God, according to Jesus in John 17, 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Who was Jesus speaking to here? He was praying to his Father. He, according to Jesus, his Father is the only true God. Does that leave room for any other true gods? No. You see, this is a consistent theme in the scriptures that man, people on earth have lost sight of. And this is why God in the last closing hours of earth's history sends these three angels messages to restore and to remind people of this particular truth. Paul also says that in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6, he says, But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. There's only one God, according to Paul here, to us as believers, as Christians. And this one God is who? The Father. And then it gives us an interesting description. It says, of whom are all things. That means He is the source of everything, correct? And He is the only source of all things. You see, the problem today is the Father's position as the great source of all has been compromised. Now, a lot of people believe that the Father is one source of three. You with me? In a common belief that is known as the Trinity. A belief that God is actually three. 
And the father, yes, is one source, but there's also another two sources making a total of three. And those three are one. That's not what we're seeing in the scriptures, is it? According to what we're reading. And this is the challenge, brothers and sisters. Today, there has become confusion among God's people over the identity of who God is. This is why Paul puts it very plainly. He says, to us, there's only one God, the Father, and He's the source of everything. And when Paul says here, He is the source of everything, there is really nothing that is excluded, as we shall see. The Father is the supreme source of everything in the universe. He is the one and true God. And this position has been confused and compromised today. And we want to clarify it through the Bible. And so we'll just uh, close up this section before we go to the next section. But I want to ask this question here. According to Jesus, who will the true worshipers worship? Because that's what the first angel's message is about. It says, worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. True worshipers, who will they worship according to Jesus? John 4, 23, he says, But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. True worshipers worship the Father. And we want to see how this is going to be carried out. So we, this is why we want to continue our study through, through the evening with how that can be done. What is the correct way to worship the Father in spirit and in truth? There is only one way to do that, as we shall see. But I also want to read a statement from Ellen White here. And uh, for those who enjoy and uh, like the writings of Ellen White, I find the statement very interesting and consistent with what we already established from the scriptures. And this is what it says. We rejoiced that the God of creation is the God of the Bible, and that we can claim this infinite being as our Father. We talked of the glories of His power and wisdom and adored the matchless love which He has made it uh, love which has made it possible through Jesus Christ for fallen man to become a son and heir of the maker and sovereign of the universe. Who is she talking about? The Father. What she referred to him as? The God of creation and the God of the Bible. So according to the Spirit of Prophecy, brothers and sisters, the God of the Bible is how many people? It's the same one that the first angel is talking about, correct? Now, this is one of those statements that you don't hear about often, right? This is one of those rare statements that nobody quotes or nobody refers to. But this is a plain statement. But it has no weight without the authority of the Scripture. We already found that truth in the Scripture. This comes as a confirmation of what already is established in the Scriptures. But many times we've missed what's in the Bible. And so we need to examine it carefully. So we need to look at the way to worship the Father. Because when we talk about this... You know, someone might say, well, this, brother, what you're saying makes good sense. You've used some very plain texts and verses. But, but what about Christ? You know, you've, you haven't talked about Christ. What about Jesus? You know, Jesus is important. You haven't said anything about that. You said God, God the Father is the God of the Bible. And that's it. You know, you left Christ out. No, we don't leave Christ out, of course. But we need to place Christ in the position that the Scripture places Him in. And nowhere else. You see, we have been susceptible to too much tradition when it comes to the question of who God is, brothers and sisters. And this tradition has usurped what authority and what uh, position Christ is presented as in the scriptures. And so we want to see what the Bible says about Christ. John 14, 6 tells us, 
Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by, but by me. And Christ here is referring to a very, very important description of himself. He refers to himself as the way. In other places, he calls himself the door. And he is the way to who? To the Father. He is the only way to the Father. That also includes the way in worship. So how we approach the Father in worship, the way to get to the Father, or the way for our worship to get to the Father is through who? Through Christ. And so in order to truly worship God, you can't do it without the way. Without Christ. And we want to see why is that the case? Why is it that Christ is the only way to the Father? Why is that so? We all believe that it is so, but why is it so? What makes Christ unique? What, what gives Christ the authority to say, I am the way and there is no other way but me? That's what I want to explore. And what does that mean when it comes to worship to Christ? How does that all work together? So I want to explore that about Christ. Now remember something, we referred to this in John 17, 3. We already read it, but I want to read it again just to bring out an issue here. It says, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is to know how many? One or two, we have two answers. So which one is it? One or two, it's a good, easy option. One, nobody said three, which is great. One or two, it's great, it's two, right? The only true God is the Father. Jesus Christ is His Son, and He is the way to the Father. Eternal life is all about Knowing God and His Son is having this relationship with them. And this, this weekend, in this camp, that's what I want to explore. But we want to lay some basic biblical foundations to know, first of all, who are we to have a relationship with? And then we want to see how that is achieved and how we can thrive in that relationship. To know Christ and Him, uh, him and the Father. Why does Christ have this position? What makes Christ so unique? It's an interesting verse in the Bible. It doesn't say very much as far as words. It's a short verse, but it means a lot. It's in 1 Corinthians 3.23. And this is what it says. Paul speaking. He says, Ye are Christ, and Christ is, is God's. You ever thought about this verse? Paul's writing to Corinthians. In other words, ye are Christ means what? You belong to Christ. And then he goes on to say, Christ is God's. Or in another translation brings it out clearly. It says, you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. You ever pondered that verse? What does it mean when it says Christ belongs to God? Or to the Father? This, this is what God here is referring to, of course. Christ belongs to the Father. Why does Christ belong to the Father? And how does Christ belong to the Father? The answer to this question is what makes Christ unique and what qualifies Him to be the way and the only way to the Father. He belongs to the Father. Now, generally, we don't think of Christ in that way, right? That's not even a term or a concept that we refer to often as Christ belonging to the Father. But Paul wrote it. It's inspired by God. He wants us to know that Christ belongs to Him. Why is that? And how is that? How is that even possible? I think we know uh, a very interesting and uh, familiar story where one time, God spoke with his voice from heaven and indicated how Christ belongs to him. Remember that story? It was when Christ was being baptized, right? What did God say from heaven? This is my belief. The key word I want to focus on here is my. 
This is my beloved son. When you say my, what does that mean? Belongs to? To you, to me. What God the Father was saying, he's identifying Christ as his. And he tells us how that is so. He says, he's my son. That's how Christ belongs to God. Now we might say, oh yeah, well, yeah, we all know that. But what does that really mean? Because there is a lot involved in understanding why Christ is the only way to the Father. This was so important that in another time, another event, the Father said the same thing again on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, 5. It says, While he had spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. This is the highest witness that we can have. <laughs> God himself says that Christ is his son. As a matter of fact, the reason why we are admonished to heed and hear the words of Christ, it is because of this fact. You know, if I was to come uh, representing someone or, or you know, uh, as an ambassador, who I represent is what gives authority to what I have to say. If I just came off my own like that, you say, well, who are you? What you say doesn't, you know doesn't uh, have weight, but if you come representing a president or someone or something or other, it gives weight to what you're saying. What gives weight to what Christ has to say is the fact that he is God's son, that he belongs to the Father, he is the Father's son. That's what gives weight and authority to what Christ has to say. Not only that, but the apostles as well emphasize this fact. One of the greatest apostles that we, of course, all know and believe and uh, treasure his writings is the Apostle Paul. Remember, he had this amazing experience on the way to Damascus, and he wrote most of the New Testament. A lot of the verses we quote uh, when we tonight is, is from Paul. And I find it very interesting that uh, when Paul was converted, <clears throat> he had an opportunity to preach a sermon. His very first sermon on Sabbath. Have you ever wondered what his first sermon was about that he preached after his conversion? What was his subject? Do you ever wondered about that? The answer is in the Bible. We don't have to look far. And Acts chapter 9 tells us, verse 20. And straight away, he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. So and on Paul's list of many sermons that he preached as an evangelist, the first sermon he preached was on the subject of Christ being the Son of God. Because this, brothers and sisters, is a foundational truth. As a matter of fact, one time Jesus asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, What? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Christ told Peter, You know what, Peter? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And then Christ says, I will build my church on this rock. The church is built on the rock or on the declaration or on the truth that Christ is the Son of God. This is the foundational truth, brothers and sisters. Why is it so important? Because it is what qualifies Christ to be this unique person in this unique position that nobody else holds. It qualifies him to be the only way to the Father, to be the door, to be the mediator, to be all these things that we believe that he is. It is based on this particular fact, as we shall see as we go on, uh, you know, a little closer. Not only that, but the Jews wanted to kill Jesus over this particular point as well. In John chapter 5 and verse 18, it says, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. 
When Jesus said that God was his father, or in other words, that he was the son of God, it's the same thing, that's what, he, that's what he said. The Jews wanted to kill him because they understood that that meant he's making himself equal with, with God. Now there is no question that Christ is equal with God, but notice something here. Did Jesus say, I am equal with God? In the verse, no, that's not what he claimed. What did he say? God is his father. They understood that that made him equal with God. In other words, his equality is based on the fact that he is the son. His sonship is the basis of his equality with the father. Oh, wow, that makes it all the more important all of a sudden. And that starts to make things, you know, they start making a lot more sense all of a sudden as well. The basis of his, son, of his equality is his sonship. And so in other words, if you want to attack or if you want to deny the equality of the son with the father, where would you attack? The basis for it, which is the sonship. And that's exactly what we find when Christ met with Satan, that the challenge of Satan was over the sonship of Christ. In Luke 4, 3, And the devil said unto him, If thou be the son of God, command the stone that it be made bread. The devil was, through questioning, seeking to cast doubt on what fact? The fact that Christ is the Son of God. He says, if you really are that, prove it. In other words, you could put it this way, if you are really equal with God, correct? The devil knows that that equality is based on sonship. That's why today, brothers and sisters, there's a lot of confusion over the sonship of Christ, as we shall see. Well, someone will say, well, you know, everybody believes that Christ is the Son of God. Yes, everybody believes it, but how does the Scripture reveal that He is the Son of God? That's what we need to believe. Because there are a lot of variations as to how people believe He is the Son of God. We need to see how the Scripture reveals Him as the Son. That's the key to understanding Him as the way to the Father. Probably the most familiar verse of the Scriptures is John 3.16. It actually has the answer. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, and whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Christ is the only begotten Son. And what does begotten mean? It doesn't take, uh, you know, it's not that hard to understand. If you have to, you can look it up in the dictionary, but it means to be born, right? Everybody in this room is begotten, correct? Every one of us. We are all children of our parents. We were begotten born. The Bible tells us that Christ is the only begotten Son of the Father. He was born of the Father. Someone might say, well, what does that mean, you know? Are you trying to say Christ was, was born like we are born? No, of course not, because obviously God is not, uh, you know, someone asked me that once and, and I, I thought it was a bit of a strange idea. God is not bound to the way that we are born to do that, okay? God has revealed to us certain things and beyond that he hasn't. So we need to be mindful of what he has said and not try and venture into trying figuring out things that God has not revealed. And so we're born of women, obviously. The Bible says Christ is the only begotten of, of God, of the Father, as we shall see. And well, there's another verse, it's right next door. John 1:14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here it spells it out for us. Christ was the only begotten of the Father. He was born. He came out of the Father. We don't know how or the process of it, but we have no doubt as to the fact that it happened. Just like when God spoke 
and creation happened. We can't explain the details of how that works, can we? But we believe it, correct? The Bible also tells us Christ is the only begotten of the Father. And what that means, brothers and sisters, is this is really the qualification. This is the key as to why Christ holds this unique position that nobody else in the universe holds. Because God has only one begotten Son, correct? There's no one else. He has this unique position that no one else has. That's why he could say, listen, I'm the only way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am his only begotten Son. And as his only begotten son, that gives me certain rights and certain privileges and certain qualities that nobody else has, as we shall see. When did this happen? When was Christ begotten of the Father? There's a lot of, uh, <laughs> we ask these questions, I know they're hard, sometimes they're hard because you'll have all kinds of answers. It seems like there's a lot of confusion over some of these answers. When was Christ begotten of the Father? A lot of people say, well, Christ is the only begotten because he was born in Bethlehem. That's how he is the only begotten of the Father. It's true that Christ was born in Bethlehem, but Christ was already the begotten Son well before that. Because God loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. The one who was given, the one who came down to be born of Mary, was the begotten Son of the Father. He had an existence before he came to earth to be born as a man. We all believe that. And his existence was as the begotten Son of God. And that's what he declared when he came to earth. He didn't become the Son of God when he came to earth, but he affirmed that fact. The prophet Micah gives us an answer in Micah 5.2. This is prophesying about the birth in Bethlehem, but then it gives us another insight. It says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from of old, from the days of eternity. In other words, saying, listen, the person who will be born in Bethlehem, this ruler, actually had goings forth from before that. If you look up the meaning of the word goings forth there, and uh, maybe I will borrow that pointer. Uh, sorry, thank you. I'll just make sure we can turn it on here. We have a nice laser. Okay, this, this expression here, goings forth, if you look it up in the... In the concordance, in the Hebrew, you'll find it actually means origin or descent. In other words, it's trying to tell us when Christ will be born in Bethlehem, that's not the first time he has existence. His goings forth, his origin or his descent is actually from of old, from the days of eternity. So to look for where Christ was begotten of the Father, we need to look way further back than Bethlehem. We actually need to look all the way back in the days of eternity. That's where this prophet is pointing us to. And in Proverbs chapter 8, we find another answer to this question in verses 22 down to 25. And here in Proverbs 8, Christ is speaking through Solomon under the title of wisdom. And notice what it says. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. Who would the Lord be here in this verse? That's the Father. So Christ is saying the Father possessed me. Remember, we saw that Christ belonged to God, right? God said, this is my son. Now he's telling us a little bit more about that. He says, the Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, was I brought forth. Now, if you look up the meaning of brought forth here, you will find that it means what? 
to be born, to need to come out of, or to be born. And when did this birth happen? Before anything was created. And it goes on to say, while as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the waters should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. So Christ, the only begotten of God, was with the Father from the days of eternity. And he actually was with the Father when creation took place, when things were created and made. And in John 1.1, we find that revealed very, very clearly. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning. And then a few verses later, it tells us that all things were made by him. Now, who is this Word? We know it, of course, it is Christ, because we just read the verse earlier that the Word was made flesh. So Christ, it says here, in the beginning was Christ, and Christ was with God. Who's that referring to then? The Father. In the Greek, actually, it has the, the article, the. And so, if uh, I don't have that there, I have it here. In the Greek, it actually says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with the God, and the Word was God, and that's throwing uh, people off a little bit, that's confused people, you know, what does it mean when it says the word was with God and the word was God? Simply tells us, brothers and sisters, that Christ had the same nature as his Father. That is the God nature. Because he was begotten, he was born of God. He came out of God. He inherited that nature. It's much like we would say, and I like this way to explain this verse, for Adam and Eve, I will look at that a little bit more in detail tomorrow. In the beginning was the woman, and the woman was with the human, and the woman was human. Is that a true or false statement? And maybe you need to think a little bit about that, but is that true or false? It's true, right? It makes sense. But you don't understand that Eve was Adam, do you? But Eve had the same nature as Adam. That's what John 1.1 1, 1 is saying, brothers and sisters. It says, in the beginning was the Word. Christ, he was with the Father, and the Word was divine, just like the Father. And the evidence of that is that all things were made by him and through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. He was with the Father in the work of creation. And so when we talk about begotten, some people get a little bit nervous and say, hold on a minute, brother. You're saying Christ was begotten of the Father, you know, at one point he was born. You're trying to say he was created. Is that what you're trying to tell us here tonight? And the answer is no. Because begotten does not mean created. As we shall see. And I want to read the statement to that effect. But begotten means to be born. Created is to be made out of nothing. When God created this world and things in it, God created things out of Nothing. There was nothing there, and God spoke, and things came into being. But when we are born, we're not created out of nothing, are we? It takes certain components that are already in existence to come together to 
produce the next offspring and the baby or the child and, and we're born that way. Christ was begotten of the Father. He wasn't created out of nothing. Let me read to you this interesting statement, also from Spirit Prophecy. It says, A complete offering has been made, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, not a son by creation, as were the angels, nor a son by adoption, as is the forgiven sinner, but a son begotten in the express image of the Father's person and in all the brightness of His majesty and glory, one equal with God in authority, dignity, and divine perfection. In Him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So according to this, and the scripture makes that, sorry, makes that very clear. Angels are sons by what? By creation. Mankind, or Adam, was a son by creation, but he fell, right? And so now we can become sons through what process? Adoption or redemption. That's what the plan of salvation is all about. We become sons of God. But Christ, it tells us, he's in a category all by himself. Nobody else is in that category. Christ is actually a son who is begotten. He's not created, he's not redeemed, he's not adopted, he's not bestowed this title upon him. He is actually born of the Father. That's why he is the only one who holds that position of equality with the Father. And since he is the only begotten son, that immediately tells us there can be no other one who is equal with the Father besides the Son. He didn't have more sons, right? There's only one begotten son. That's important to help us understand as we go on. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.